go to Luke's Gospel, chapter 12 together. We've been moving through Luke's Gospel verse by verse. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to have one to follow along with us, you can slip your hand up. We'd be happy to bring one over to your seat. Make sure you can validate what I'm saying is true. Don't trust me or anybody with spiritual and eternal things. If you want a copy of the Word of God to follow along, just lift your hand up. You can stay on track with us. Luke chapter 12, and this morning we pick back up in verse 35, where we left off last week. And we're going to go from verse 35 down through verse 48. And if you're turned there with me out of reverence for the Word of God, would you stand together with me for the reading of God's Word this morning? Luke 12, yes, in verse 35. Let your waist be girded, Jesus says, and your lamps burning. And you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find them watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat, And will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch, or come in the third watch, and find them so, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And then Peter said to him, Lord, do you speak this parable only to us? were to all people. And the Lord said, Who is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his house to give them the portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and be drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him, at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in two and appoint him as portion with the unbelievers. And that servant who knew his master's will, and did not prepare himself or do according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. For every one to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. And Father, we humble our hearts before you now this morning. Thank you for this opportunity to assemble, to worship. And Lord, we want to worship in spirit and truth as we continue now in this part of the worship meeting Lord, may our hearts, we pray, be sensitive to the voice of your Holy Spirit. You know where each of us is at this morning and what we need to hear from you. So, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would quicken our hearts, give us an ear to hear and an eye to see what you would want us to know about our lives and what you would speak into our lives this morning. Lord, you know what that means for each one of us. Meet us through your word, we pray. Bless your word. And as always, we pray that we wouldn't hear wise or persuasive words of a man, but experience that demonstration of your spirit and your power, speaking personally to each one of our hearts. Speak to us now, Lord, bless your word. And we thank you in advance for doing such in Jesus' wonderful name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated.
little test for you this morning. I know we've all heard this before, so you can certainly help me finish it. It goes like this. Ready or not, what? Here I come. Ready or not, here I come. That statement indicates whether you are prepared or whether you're unprepared. Either way, whether you're prepared or not, a person is coming to the place where you're currently at. And I think the passage in front of us as we look at it together this morning, really that's the main concept, the overriding theme of what Jesus is trying to convey in this very passage here, in this next section of his teaching, that he is coming. That he is coming to where we're at, whether we are ready or whether we're not. Now the glorious thing is, there's still breath in your lungs, and there's still opportunity to be ready if you're not ready yet. And Jesus here this morning, we notice, is giving us a warning, basically, to be ready for his return. Now the background, as we move into this section, remember, Jesus is in the midst of a teaching with his disciples. He's assembled with a large crowd. His disciples are there. And he's been giving various warnings. We saw earlier, beginning in the beginning of chapter 12, he warned about hypocrisy. Then he warned about covetousness and greed and self-indulgence. Last time in our study, we saw Jesus warn about anxiety and worry. And now we find Jesus warning about being ready for his return. Now, here's a very marvelous thing. If we heed the warning that Jesus is setting before us this morning, and we live responsively being ready for his return, it actually helps resolve the struggle with all those other prior issues he's already talked about. See, if we are living ready for the return of Jesus, it really helps resolve struggles with things like spiritual hypocrisy. Because if you think Jesus is imminently returning at any moment, it'll really wipe some hypocrisy out of your life and you'll stop playing games spiritually. If you really believe Jesus is returning very soon, it'll probably affect the way that you live in relationship to greed and materialism and self-indulgence because you believe things are almost over and the Lord's coming soon. And if you really believe and take heed to the warning that Jesus is returning soon, all the anxieties and the worries about next month and next year and even next week, saying how are we going to make it and this, it really begins to diminish that because you realize at any moment the Lord could just return and lift us right out of this difficult and crazy world. And what a wonderful thing to realize that taking heed to this one warning can really help with all those other things. Now again, we find Jesus, if you note in our reading, speaking in parables. And as we said before, a parable is basically an earthly story laid next to a spiritual truth. An earthly story, something we can relate to, laid next to a spiritual truth for the purpose of helping the listener take hold of a spiritual concept or a spiritual truth. You know, if Jesus were on the earth today, and that day he spoke about agricultural things and, and coins and things that happen in the marketplace. If he was in today's day and age, he would probably speak about cell phones and computers and iPads. And he would use things that we could relate to, and he would tell an earthly story to convey a spiritual truth. And many times in a parable, there's usually one main point that the Lord is trying to convey. We have to be careful trying to overly dissect 
parables and try and at times even develop doctrine from them. I think we can glean principles, but to use a parable to establish uh, doctrines, we need to be very careful of that because sometimes we can really get off track with it. There's usually one main principle behind the parable that Jesus is giving, and it's pretty obvious what it is in this section. Take note of his first parable. Come with me back to verse 35. Let's begin to look at this. Jesus, first of all, begins before even giving a parable to make really... Just a direct command here. Look at verse 35. Jesus says, first of all, as he's transitioning into the next warning of being ready for his coming, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. Now, it's pretty obvious there that the main point that Jesus is conveying here as he goes into this next parable is about a servant being prepared and being expectant for the soon arrival of their master. Look what the parable is. First one he gives, verse 36. And you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or the third watch, and find them so, blessed are those servants. So it's pretty obvious, as he gets to that first parable, the main point is that a servant should be expectantly waiting and prepared for the soon arrival of their master when he returns back to where those servants are. But before Jesus begins the parable, he first of all, in verse 35, gives a direct command prior to the parable. And that direct command, he simply says, verse 35, let your waist be girded and your lamps be burning. Jesus' desire is that we be prepared to accomplish his will. And notice, first of all, he speaks in that statement there, really, of the fact that he wants nothing hindering our ability to serve him constructively. Jesus wants nothing hindering our ability to serve him constructively. That's what he means when he says there, let your waist be girded. Let your waist be girded. See, in that day, the Jews would wear long, flowing robes, as is typical in that culture, even in many places still to this day. And as they wore these long, flowing robes, if they needed to move more quickly, or maybe they wanted to do some work at that moment, that robe, because of the nature of it and the length of it, many times would encumber them. It would hinder them. It wouldn't allow them to be as efficient or move as quickly. So what they would do, typically, so it wouldn't hold them back or impede their ability to work or move quickly, is they would take the robe and they would lift it up, and then they would cinch off the robe higher up at their waist with a belt. And this is what the idea is there when Jesus talks about let your waist be girded. They would cinch off with a belt the robe up higher. They would hike it up so that they were able to move more efficiently and that they wouldn't be hindered or encumbered to move around or to do work. So girding the waist, basically, you can say, was a process of removing personal hindrances, removing personal hindrances that would trip up or hold you back from being productive and making progress efficiently. That's the analogy Jesus is using and something they can relate to when he says, hey, let your waist be girded in relation to being ready for his coming. He's saying, in your life, in relation to my soon return as the master, he says, sometimes we need in our spiritual lives to sort of to gird our waist, to look at those things that maybe are a hindrance in our lives, 
to stop and evaluate on occasion our spiritual life, our walk with the Lord, and recognize, wait a minute, is there anything right now that honestly is kind of holding me back a little bit from serving Jesus the way I should? Or is there something I've allowed in my life that actually is becoming a little bit of a hindrance to my spiritual life or my walk with the Lord or the calling God has upon my life? Now that can be uh, involvement in something that's not necessarily wrong, but just maybe it consumes a lot of our time and it monopolizes what we do. And therefore, because of that, we kind of get distracted and, and taken away from the priority of spiritual things. Many times I think we can simply be hindered and covered by a relationship. We become over enamored with some person, whether it's you know romantically or whatever it may be, and that relationship can many times supersede the place of Jesus and spiritual priorities in our lives, and it can actually start to become a hindrance to your devotional life. You spend more time texting or talking to him or her than you do praying to Jesus. Or maybe it consumes enough of our time to where we are shrinking back from our spiritual priorities and serving the Lord or our walk with the Lord because we're overly involved hanging out with this group of friends. And again, nothing wrong in and of these things of themselves, but we have to evaluate on occasion, is there something in my life that's maybe a hindrance right now? Is there something in your life this morning that you're involved in that maybe if you were honest, you would recognize is, is kind of holding you back a little bit spiritually? And if that's the case, listen, Jesus is saying we need to make life adjustments on occasion. It's an okay thing. Sometimes you got to gird your waist a little spiritually. you got to take the inventory and then be responsive and say, you know what, hey, I need to make a little life adjustment here and, and readjust so Jesus is the first priority in my life because Jesus doesn't want anything, notice, to hinder us from being able to serve him constructively. Secondly, he says as well there in verse 35 also that we need to have our lamps burning. And to me there, Jesus is commanding us not to let anything hinder our ability to see clearly either. That nothing would be in our life that, that's hindering us from seeing clearly where we need to be going as we walk and journey with Jesus. A, a burning lamp was basically a reliable, ready, usable light source that enabled you to see where you were going in the dark so that you would navigate correctly where you needed to go. And I don't know about you, but would you agree the world's pretty dark today? And it's not getting any brighter. It's getting continuously darker and darker and darker. And that's not going to cease. That's going to continue and progress. I don't know about you, but when I evaluate my own human understanding and my intellect and my sinful nature and my own flesh, I realize, as Ephesians says, even my own human understanding naturally is darkened. And that's why I need constantly the internal lamp of my own spirit to be lit and continuously burning because the world is as dark as can be and internally my heart and mind naturally as dark as can be so if I don't have the internal lamp burning continuously in my heart I'm really going to get off track very quickly I need that constant light burning within and I think there's two means of that happening first of all by encountering Jesus because what did Jesus say in John chapter 8? Jesus said in John 8 verse 12, he said, I am the light of the world. And he said, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So one of the greatest ways to have light and an internal lamp burning in a very dark world is to just simply encounter Jesus. Because he said, I am the light of the world. And if you follow me, you won't walk in darkness, but you'll have the light of life. You will understand how to live correctly and spiritually. 
And I think that happens in two ways. First of all, that happens in salvation initially. That this morning, if you've never committed your life to Jesus Christ, you never come to him and let him be the savior for your sins and asked him to forgive you of your failures and told him honestly that you believe in what he did on the cross and that you want to go to heaven after you die and you've never had a conversion experience where you've repented of your sins and received by faith Jesus Christ and Savior as Lord to begin to follow him as the light of the world you know what you're going to continue to walk in the dark until you come to Jesus Christ you will never have the light of life this world gives us no light your internal heart and mind just like mine will not give you any light Jesus needs to turn the light on and you need to encounter Jesus and let him have rulership and control in your life because guess what? Then you'll see clearly. Then you'll see clearly to make good and wise and, and healthy decisions. You'll have the light of life the way God intended. But that only comes in encountering Jesus in salvation. Then all of a sudden you don't stumble around in the dark and make decisions and, and get lost and off track and, and find yourself with great regrets. And for us as Christians, we need to continue to follow closely the light of the world, Jesus, because we have a tendency to, to get off track. And the world's dark and our internal spirit is dark by nature, our human capacity. And we need to constantly stay close to Jesus and be encountering and following Jesus to let Jesus help us navigate where we're going. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, maybe you've said recently, man, I just really feel like I'm in the dark about this. I just feel like I need some direction. I really feel like I'm in the dark about this. Listen, it may not be that complicated. It may be just draw a little closer to Jesus because he's the light of the world. It may be a very simple fix. Just draw a little closer to Jesus and his light will give greater direction in your life. Not only encountering Jesus, but also depositing God's word brings light as well. Because Psalm 119 tells us what? Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The psalmist says as well in that same psalm, the entrance of your words gives light. That's why every morning I need to sit with Jesus and open the Word of God because when the Word of God goes into my life, the entrance of the Word of God gives light. There's a deposit of light into my spirit that allows me to see clearly for that day and walk as closely and wisely with the Lord as I can. So depositing the Word of God is another great way to keep that internal lamp burning. Well, Jesus now begins to speak in a parable starting in verse 36. And again, not in literal language, He's using parabolic and metaphoric speech. He says in verse 36, You yourselves notice, be like, be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Now, when a master would go away for a wedding celebration, it was usually a, at least a week-long feast and celebration. So that master might be gone for an entire week and leave his servants and stewards to tend to his household. And when he returned, the servants should be waiting for his return at the end of that week. And when he returned at the end of a week, it was a good thing if when the master knocked on the locked gate or knocked on the locked door, if he did not experience something like the following. Here comes the master. He returns home after a week. The servants have been there. Who is it? Oh, it's your master. And then he has this long, peculiar delay on the other side. And he starts to hear a worried whisper. Oh, no. Guys, get all this stuff out of here. Send everybody back home. Clean everything up right away. 
He's on the other side of the gate. Hurry, hurry. I'll try and stall him. And the master's on the other. That would not be a good experience, would you agree, for a master? And I know for some of you I'm getting flashbacks right now, and I apologize for that. And everything is covered under the blood of Jesus, so just be thankful for that, okay? But, I mean, can you imagine if that took place for a master? That would not be a good thing, where all of a sudden he's hearing this worried whisper, and he's hearing, uh, uh, hold on, master, the lock's a little jammed. Give us a moment. We're going to open up here in a second. Just We're seeming to have a little problem with the lock. That master would be highly disappointed. He'd probably be brokenhearted. And he would even be rightfully upset because he realized what happened and what they were probably doing in his absence. Now, the preference of any master would be the exact opposite, that when he returns, he'd find his servants waiting for him, He would find them ready to open the door without hesitation, to welcome their master back home with no fears or concerns, nothing, uh, no needing to fix anything up first or correct things before he enters. And the reason, because they're not doing anything that they would be ashamed of if their master walks right through the front door. And Jesus here uses this as an illustration to show how it ought to be with us as his servants. Again, he's likening himself to a master and likening us, of course, to servants. And our master, we could say, has departed and he's returning to this earth soon. And I believe a lot sooner rather than later from what I see. And our master is going to return to this earth. And in the meantime, the question is, what will be the reception of Jesus when he suddenly returns? Is there anything in our lives that Jesus would catch us doing that we're involved in any practices that we should not be. When Jesus returns instantly, are you this morning currently involved in any behavior, any situation, any circumstance or habit or whatever it may be that would cause you to be ashamed if Jesus showed up in an instant? Is there anything that you're involved in that you'd be a little worried about should the Lord just step right in and blow the trumpet and draw you into his presence? That's an important thing to be conscious of and be remembering. We should never be doing anything that we would be ashamed of if Jesus instantly showed up. Because as we'll see, Jesus can instantly show up. And so there should never be anything that we're doing that allow us to be ashamed in light of that. Instead, we should be living our life and conducting our affairs in a way where we have a clean conscience and we have a pure heart and clean hands before the Lord and we are confidently waiting for the return of our Master. That with open arms and anticipation and excitement, we are thrilled about the fact that at any moment, Jesus could remove us from this planet and draw us into his presence and that we could give accounting to him without having to worry about apologizing for the first few thousand years in eternity for things that we were doing that we know we shouldn't have done and being in a sense of grief maybe over the loss if we were involved in things we shouldn't have been. Now, that should be the condition of our heart, not not hoping that Jesus delays, but hungering for Jesus to return this morning. Are you hoping Jesus delays? If you are, repent, by golly. I'm hungering Jesus shows up. I want to get out of here. I want to be with the Lord. I want to see souls saved and people be ready for eternity, but I'm an escapist. I'll be the first to admit it with many others. I'm, I'm ready to get out of this difficult world. It's challenging and it's hard being here and staying faithful to Jesus. And we want to be prepared and expectant. Today, Are you ask yourself, are you worried about Jesus returning? 
Or are you anxiously waiting for Jesus to return? Are you worried about Jesus returning? Or are you anxiously waiting for Jesus to return? Because I tell you this, that matters to Jesus. And it also many times reveals where you're at spiritually right now. It's a real good thermometer. Are you worried about Jesus returning? Or are you waiting and ready and excited about Jesus returning? Many times that's a clear indication exactly where we may be at spiritually. Well, look with me in verse 37. Jesus says, Blessed are those servants who when the master, when he comes, will find them, notice the term, watching. Assuredly, I say to you, he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or in the third watch, these would be late night, early morning hours, and find them so, that is, find them watching, Jesus again emphasizes, blessed are those servants. So take note, according to the words of Jesus, it's a blessed and wonderful thing when servants are found by their master to be expectantly watching, anticipating his return with the indication seems to be enthusiasm. Not just, again, notice waiting, but watching with enthusiasm, expectantly waiting for him to show up. When a master comes back and sees his servants not only ready and waiting, but instead actually recognizes, hey, they were like enthusiastically watching, looking for me with anticipation and desire for me to show up because they couldn't wait until I did. Jesus says this is a blessed thing for both the servants and the master, especially, he says, verse 38, if the master should come even at a very inconvenient time, the second or the third watch, like at a, a very difficult hour, late into the night and early into the morning hours. And really, when a master finds his servants looking intently for him to come, Jesus shows us it's actually a dual blessing. It's a dual blessing. Number one, it blesses the master's heart. Can you imagine how wonderful it would feel if you were the master and when you returned back home, you found your servants suddenly just waiting and, and maybe not doing wrong things, but if they were actually watching and looking for you with excitement about your return, that would totally bless the heart of a master. Would you agree? Why? Because he'd realize at that moment that he's very important to his servants. And he would sense and recognize how much they really care about him. Again, if I can illustrate, there is a difference between just waiting and actually watching for someone to return. There have been occasions before over the years where I've gone on mission trips before to Ireland, Northern Ireland, to the Dominican Republic. I've been away from my wife and from my children. And when I'm coming back, having been away maybe a week or 10 days or something like that, when I returned home, having been away, Trish and the girls could be, when I walk through the door, just preoccupied with doing something else and maybe to the point imagine if I walked into the door and I'm home and there you know somebody's over here watching TV and somebody else is over here doing something they just totally ignore me when I come through the door they were waiting but they weren't really watching they weren't really giving me the sense that they couldn't wait till I get home See, many times, to tell you the truth, because God's blessed me with a wonderful wife and fantastic children, many times when they sensed the time was coming, when I was going to arrive soon, and they didn't know the exact hour when I would come. Hey, I'm on the way home, plane landed, I'll be there sometime soon. They didn't know, but many a times, more often than not, 
the front door was open, the glass was there, and, and they, when I would pull into the driveway, had the little faces smashed up against the glass, and they were all excited, and many times they'd come even running out and, and initiate the embrace. And can I tell you something? As a husband and as a father, man, that blessed my heart. That made me feel wonderful. And see, we can do the exact same thing for Jesus. He says, blessed is a wonderful thing. It blesses the heart of the master when he finds his servants not only just waiting but watching. And see, there's also a dual blessing the other side of it in that it's a blessing for the watching servants. We are blessed as the servants of the Lord when we're watching for his return as our master because notice Jesus says in the story, verse 37, Assuredly I say to you that when the master finds them watching, he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and he will come and serve them. Now that was completely unusual culturally. Masters did not humble themselves and serve their servants. So for a master to begin to say, hey, you sit down, let me bless you, let me serve you, that really was an incredible reward of treatment. But see, in the same way, applying it spiritually, Jesus, our master, has promised, and he keeps his promises, that he will reward us for the way in which we serve him. Listen to the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 12. These are the words of Jesus. Jesus says, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. So by you and I watching for Jesus, not only do we bless his heart, the wonderful thing, there's a dual blessing, is as we're watching for Jesus and staying occupied in the things of the kingdom and serving him faithfully in the time while he is gone, the wonderful thing is Jesus says, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me. And you will be rewarded, Jesus says, for any work that you do for me. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says, you know, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing, he says, that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now let me tell you something. You and I can give ourselves to all kinds of things as we breathe to our very last breath on this earth. The Bible says the only thing that's a labor that's not in vain is what you do for Jesus. Whether that's being nice to your next door neighbor and showing love and compassion, whether that's going to the furthest ends of the earth and being a missionary the rest of your life, whether it's witnessing to someone when you get an opportunity, whether it's as a teenager taking the time to be loving and kind to someone else that everyone is criticizing and being mean to because you want to show them the love of God, whatever it is, Jesus says your labor in the Lord will never be in vain. Now, many of you, you've labored for companies and you've never been properly rewarded the way you've labored for that company. And a lot of what you did was in vain. And we can give ourselves to all kinds of things and it's vain, but not when you serve Jesus. Because Jesus says, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me and I will give my reward, he says, to everyone according to the work to which they've done. Well, Jesus switches now gears and he kind of enters into another parable. Notice with me there in verse 39, he says, but know this, and this is a new short parable he begins, know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. So Jesus gives a quick snapshot of another parable, and the point here of this parable, very simply, is this, is that a thief always operates by the element of surprise. A thief always operates by the element of surprise. 
I worked for about five years in partnership with the York City Police Department where we used to live at as a police chaplain. And I can tell you this, in all the scenes and situations that we responded to, no thief ever called ahead or scheduled an appointment to rob a store. It just didn't happen. Nobody ever raided into the department and say, hey, if you want to get someone over to the local Rudder's convenience store, probably around 12 is when we're going to go try and you know, knock off and, and steal a few things. It never happened. Right? Why? Because that would be, it'd be unsuccessful. You don't schedule an appointment to rob someone's home or, or, or call ahead to rob a bank. That wouldn't work because then the owner would what? They'd be ready and they'd be prepared to stop you. The point Jesus is conveying here, the fact that this homeowner, he says, was not expecting, and he was not ready, and he was not watching, was really the thing that made him vulnerable to having his life be broken into and suddenly suffering personal loss. That's the concept Jesus is conveying. Because he was not ready, therefore he was greatly surprised and he suffered great personal loss in his own life. Now, applying that principle, Jesus says, verse 40, therefore, you also be what? Be ready. Be ready, he says, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect. In other words, metaphorically, it's an illustration, just like a thief's coming, when a thief comes, and his success is based on what? The element of surprise. Just like the thief's coming, there will be an element of surprise to Jesus showing up. There will be an element of catching people off guard when Jesus Christ steps back into this realm and raptures out his church and begins once again his soon coming back to this planet to step up his kingdom. And there will be an element of tremendous surprise when the Lord Jesus returns. It will catch people off guard. People will be unprepared for the arrival of Jesus. Jesus himself said, no man knows the day or the hour of his return. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 5.2. He says, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. As a thief in the night. Again, the idea being is that if we're not ready for the return of Jesus, we're going to have great regret and suffer personal loss. The key is being ready for the return of Jesus. Seeing the indicators, being aware. We don't know the day or the hour, but the signs and the seasons are very obvious that Jesus is coming soon. The reality is this, and here's the simple reality. Jesus says the Son of Man is coming. That's the reality. Don't miss that. And, and, and no one and nothing is going to alter that. I don't care what legislation they pass. I don't care what groups say this or promote that or what agenda. Jesus is coming. And it is really good to let that reality sink deep down into your soul because the Lord's coming is at hand and nothing's going to stop him and nothing's going to stop him from returning to this earth. And prophetically, when you study the word of God, it becomes very obvious that there are no prophecies that need still be fulfilled before Jesus raptures the church from this earth and returns to this planet. Nothing left prophetically has to be fulfilled anymore. 
At any moment, the Lord may quickly return. You may ask, well, well how or, or when will that happen? Well, Jesus says in verse 40 there, it's going to be at an hour when you do not expect. Here's one thing I can tell you about the return of Jesus. When it happens, it will be when nobody's expecting it. It'll be when nobody's expecting it. The reality is he's coming. What does that mean for us? Or you could say, what's our responsibility? Well, very simply, verse 40, Jesus says, you also be ready. Knowing that reality, Jesus says, you need to be ready. That means this morning, as a Christian, as a believer and a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I need to be living ready. I need to be living my life in a state of expectancy. And this morning, as I know happens to me on occasion, if you find yourself in a place where you've kind of lost that condition of heart, you've kind of lost that sense of expectancy for the soon return of Jesus, that sense of anticipation that, hey, at any moment, really, it's a reality, at any moment the Lord can return, then you know what? I pray this morning that by the Spirit of God you would ask the Lord to restore that sense of expectancy in your heart again. You know, Paul says this in Romans chapter 13, verse 11. He says, And do this knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. He says, The day is at hand. Hear what Paul says? He says, Doing this now, it's high time to awake out of sleep. Who's he talking to? Christians. He's writing to the believers in Rome. Because why? The Roman culture, no doubt, was saying, you've been saying that Jesus is coming forever. Look what you're missing out on. You people are a bunch of stick-in-the-muds, pie-in-the-sky, you're expecting this Jesus to come back and get you, and hey, get with the times. And that starts to wear on people after a while. And Paul tells the believers at Rome, being indoctrinated by the Roman culture, who he also says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. You let yourself continually be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let God keep reprogramming your mind so you don't believe the lies the world's sowing into your brain. And he says, look, it's high time to awake out of sleep. And he says, because your salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. I don't care which way you interpret that verse whether it's referring to your salvation or whether it, it's the, referring to, to the fact of, uh, you know, w when the Lord returns to come back. Either way, you are one day closer today to the return of Jesus than you were yesterday. So no matter what way you try and interpret that, your salvation is nearer right now than when you first believed. Every day that goes by, you are one day closer to the imminent, immediate return of Jesus. So that should constantly be awakening us to recognize that reality. And this morning as well, once again, if you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, maybe you're still considering the claims of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're still deciding. And you know what? The Bible says count the cost before you become a disciple. Maybe you're reading the Word of God. Maybe somebody's been witnessing to you about who Jesus is and what it means to be a Christian, that it's not about being religious, but no, Jesus wants a relationship. He wants you to let him forgive your sins. He wants you to, to recognize you're a sinner. And, and he wants you to just follow him and let him have control of your life, not rub religion all over yourself, but to open up your life and, and embrace the rulership of Jesus in your life and to be born again by the Holy Spirit. And maybe you're still reconciling that and maybe you're starting to understand it but, but you're, you're still hedging on the decision listen Jesus is coming 
And you need to be ready. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Because there's no guarantee of tomorrow. Today, the Bible says, is the day of salvation. And if you understand, but yet you're still struggling making the decision, can I just challenge you in the love of the Lord? Get ready, man. Get ready. So that way, you're not unexpectedly interrupted and find yourself with deep, eternal regret because you put off one more day embracing Jesus and you put it off one day too long. So Jesus challenges us as believers to be ready because he's coming and he challenges the unbeliever, I believe, in that crowd to be ready as well. He says, the Son of Man's coming in an hour you do not expect. Well, I know you're surprised, but guess who speaks in verse 41? Peter. And he says, hearing these things, Lord, do you speak this parable only to us? Is it just for us disciples, the 12 of us? Or is this for all the people? In other words, are these universal principles? What's interesting is, notice, Jesus doesn't answer Peter's specific question, as which would happen on occasion, because Peter would interrupt. <laughs> Instead, Jesus just goes on talking about the thing that he knew that the people in the crowd needed to hear. So he enters into another parable now, beginning in verse 42, regarding a servant's conduct. The servant's conduct while his master is away, and how that servant will be held responsible for how he conducted himself in the absence of his master until he returns. Verse 42, Jesus says, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give him their, uh, give him their portion of food in due season? Blessed, Jesus says, is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. Notice here with me in verse 42 to 44 that Jesus considers us not only servants, but also he uses the word stewards. Now a steward, very simply, is just someone who's been entrusted to manage the resources of another. That's what stewardship is. A steward someone who manages the resources of another. The Bible teaches that everything in creation belongs to God. We're stewards. As followers of King Jesus and his servants, everything spiritually regarding the kingdom and spiritual life, it all belongs to King Jesus, and we are just stewards who've been entrusted what ultimately belongs to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1, Paul says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Yes, we are servants of Jesus, but Paul says also we are also stewards of Jesus and the things of spiritual life. And stewards must always give an accounting for how they handle what was entrusted under their care. It's a principle of stewardship. Stewards always have to give an accounting for what was entrusted to their care. And the Lord has entrusted each one of us in this room this morning with stewardships in different ways in our life. If you're a follower of Jesus, he's entrusted you with the stewardship of your spiritual life. It's your responsibility, the stewardship of how you walk with Jesus each and every day and to what measure you follow him in your commitment and relationship. For those of you who are married this morning, that's a stewardship. You have a stewardship and God holds you accountable of that stewardship of your marriage with your husband or with your wife. If you have children, that's a tremendous stewardship that God's entrusted you with in your life. If God's called you to have perhaps uh, you know, a special amount of time, you can dedicate to something. All of our time, honestly, it's a stewardship of God, how we spend it. Our resources, our talents, our gifts. 
Maybe God's called some of you to a particular ministry and he wants to use you in service. Hey, that ministry that God entrusts you to serve in, that's a stewardship. God's given you a stewardship to let you share in the work of his kingdom, to allow me to participate in something that is blood-bought and very important to the Lord. And it's a stewardship that the Lord entrusts us with in our lives. And Jesus identifies here that a good steward from the master's perspective is two things. A good steward from the master's perspective is two things, he says in verse 42. Number one is that a steward is to be faithful. Faithful. That simply means reliable, dependable, responsible, committed, Someone who follows through with their commitment, they're trustworthy, they're loyal. Again, in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 2, Paul says this regarding stewardship. He says, moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Take notice of that. The Bible doesn't say it's recommended in stewards that one be found faithful. I would recommend it because it's pretty important. I would recommend being faithful in your stewardship. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says it's required. It's a requirement, God says. He doesn't say it's suggested. He doesn't say it would probably work out better for you and everyone else if you were faithful in your stewardship in your marriage or faithful in your stewardship with your children or faithful in your stewardship with your response. No, the Bible says it's required. It's a requirement of stewardship. Why? Because nothing belongs to us. Everything belongs to the Lord and we're just entrusted to manage it under his care with great responsibility. Good thing to ask yourself this morning to evaluate the various stewardships in your life and ask, are you really being faithful? You know what God's entrusted you with. You know what your stewardships are. Are you being as faithful with that responsibility, with that role, with that stewardship and opportunity as you really could? If not, ask the Lord by the fruit of his spirit to produce more faithfulness in your life, to be a wise steward, but more important, to be a faithful steward first and foremost and the other thing he mentions about a good steward is not just faithfulness but he says who is that notice faithful and wise steward so two things matter from the perspective of a master about stewardship hey that steward is really faithful that's key and essential but a master also wants his steward to be wise now i love that take notice that he does not say that that steward necessarily has to be highly educated i'd be out of the picture super intelligent and talented, most of us would be removed. He just says, no, that steward just has to be wise. And what is wisdom? Wisdom is basically something that God himself can give to us that we make well-thought-out decisions. Wisdom means using foresight. It means patiently considering things, not being a hasty person, not being impulsive in the way we make decisions, but being discerning, looking ahead, being able when you make decisions and choices and actions and behaviors to say, where will this course ultimately lead? That's using wisdom. Being a wise steward means just simply having understanding and sound judgment in the way that you make choices about things. You know, the book of Proverbs, which is a book about wisdom, emphasizes repeatedly that there are two main ingredients, really, to what wisdom is. And read the book of Proverbs and you'll see two recurring themes defining really what the ingredients of wisdom are. And really, I find that it are these two things. Number one, the fear of God. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And notice when you go through Proverbs, the, the weaved theme that many a times wisdom is related to a healthy fear of God. 
That is, wisdom is respecting that we are accountable to God for everything we say and do in this life. That's very wise. And another component to wisdom is not just the fear of God. Another component to wisdom all throughout the book of Proverbs is number two, listening to other people. And many of us don't like to do that. Proverbs tells us in chapter 13, verse 10, with the well-advised is wisdom. Safety is found in a multitude of counselors. By wise counsel, wage war. Having a healthy fear of God, knowing, hey, I'm responsible for everything, and listening to the wisdom and input to make well-informed choices and decisions of other people God's put around you, the Bible says that's a good way to exercise wise stewardship in your decisions. So Jesus says, be faithful and wise in your stewardship, and that, he says, will bless the heart of the master, and again, he shows, will be rewarded personally. Notice, he shows us here in these verses that the master is always blessed to find wise and faithful stewards. That's what he's saying here in verse 42 down throughout. He says, when that master finds a faithful and wise steward, he says, it will make him ruler of his household. And he says, verse 43, blessed is that servant who his master will so find doing when he comes. It's a blessed thing when a master finds a steward being wise and being faithful. It blesses his heart. Now, this morning, that's great encouragement because to know that by simply being faithful and being wise in the stewardships that God has given to you, you can bless the heart of the Lord. Regardless of what the seeming measure of success is, regardless of the state of affairs or the results you see, you can bless and honor Jesus by just being faithful to your stewardship and just being wise in the responsibilities that God's committed to you. And not only that, again, we see that good stewardship also brings reward from the master, that he will entrust us with greater responsibility. He gives us greater opportunity as our reward for faithful and wise stewardship. The Lord Jesus always rewards according to how we handle, listen, how we handle what we are already currently responsible for. The Lord Jesus always rewards according to how we are currently handling what we've already been entrusted with. Not what we'd like to obtain, but how are you managing what's already under your stewardship? He who's faithful and little, the Bible says, is entrusted with much. And we see that same principle happening here. Look at verse 45. Jesus says, but if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying, and begins, he says, at that point, seeing his master is delaying, his coming begins to beat the male and female servants to eat and drink and be drunk. That master of the servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him at an hour when he's not aware and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. So Jesus gives a very stark reminder that poor stewardship is always a possibility. And he also says that poor stewardship will also be punished rather severely. Take notice from the point that Jesus makes here that poor stewardship involved two things in this particular story. Poor stewardship involved number one, mistreating people. Jesus says he begins to beat and harm and, and have no regard for the care and concern of other people. Jesus says there's an indicator of poor stewardship that people are just a casualty. Hey, I don't care. I'm doing this and people are, they're just a casualty. Sorry. Jesus says there's an indication of poor stewardship. And he says the other indication of poor stewardship is misconduct in a person's personal life where you become to be self-indulgent, eating, drinking, getting drunk, just becoming a self-indulgent person. 
Jesus says those are two signs of poor stewardship. And notice that poor stewardship, Jesus says, stems from, it's rooted in, having lost perspective of the return of the master. Because he says that the servant who is doing that in poor stewardship is doing so because he believes his master is delaying his coming. In other words, poor stewardship starts to happen in our lives when we forget that one day we are going to have to give an accounting for everything. And then all of a sudden, a person begins thinking that they can act foolishly or act unfaithfully, and it doesn't really matter because they're not going to have to answer for it. And it's a loss of perspective, Jesus says. When a person begins to act foolishly or unfaithfully, thinking they're never going to have to answer for it, Jesus says, wow, that person's lost perspective because everything is going to have to be answered for. And rather sooner rather than later for most of us for what we expect. So recognizing we've lost that perspective can begin to have a real harm in our stewardship. And Jesus says, it will be judged rather severely. He says, when the master returns, he'll cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. Look at verse 47. Jesus says, and the servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself to do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. <clears throat> but he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. So the Lord shows us here that servants are held accountable for what they know and what they do with it. And he says, if there's a particular servant, maybe they're rather ignorant of their master's will. They're not informed, and yet they're committing errors because of that. But there's a sense of naiveness and ignorance. Jesus says, though they deserve judgment, a measure of mercy will be extended to them because they were acting in ignorance. However, Jesus says in contrast in verse 47 there, if that servant knew his master's will and did not prepare himself to do according to his will, he shall be beaten with many stripes. In other words, Jesus is declaring when a servant clearly knows the will of his master, then they're doubly responsible for how they respond. When a servant clearly knows what is right and what his master wants, and then for whatever reason does not prepare himself to do according to his master's will, but acts in a different way, Jesus says, is to invite severe discipline and judgment upon oneself. Because that servant at that point is in a conscious, willful rebellion. And God never takes very lightly in his word to conscious, willful rebellion. And for all of us here this morning, perhaps in your life recently, maybe the Lord has clearly shown you what his will is already in the past. And like Jesus says here, you know your master's will. You know what his will is. But yet for whatever reason, though you know what his will is, for whatever reason, whatever factors, whether it's fears or concerns or circumstances don't seem to line up or distractions, you're trying to pursue your own will. You're doing the Jonah thing. And you clearly know what the Lord's intended for you from a long time ago. But yet you're looking to hop ship and head off with your will for whatever reasons that may be. Hey, can I be one last voice of caution to you this morning? Don't do that. Don't do that. Prepare and do whatever it takes to follow your master's will, to do his will. That's the course of blessing. Whatever that takes, maybe it's humility, maybe it's repentance, maybe it's returning back to a right perspective. Listen, do the Lord's will no matter what that takes. It's always the safest place to be. For Jesus says, 
verse 48, For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. The spiritual principle with privilege always comes responsibility. If the Lord's deposited a lot into your life, he's going to expect a lot out of your life. We say to our children, hey, you know better. You say to the older ones, you, you know better. I expect more of you. Well, same with God's accountability system. If God has deposited into your life more than other people in whatever way, and he deposits into our life in various different ways. If he's deposited more into your life, then more is going to be asked and expected of you. That's just the way God's accountability system works. And really, it's a, it's a good and proper system. That should keep us sober and humble and compel us to be what? Wise and faithful stewards. Because we realize that with our responsibility becomes accountability and, and great accounting for that. And that should remind us as well that if we've been given a greater role, that God absolutely has the right to expect more of us. If you're a husband this morning, God's entrusted to you a greater responsibility as the head of your home. And guess what? It's right for God to ask more of you. It's not right for you to say, well, it's not fit. No. God should require more of you. He should require more of you and he should require more of your children. If God's given you a leadership role in any capacity, in business, in ministry, whatever, guess what? It is right to ask more of you because you have a greater responsibility. You should have to live. I should have to live at a different level because more has been entrusted to us. Jesus says here, to whoever much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. It's a right and an acceptable thing. You know, one final thought I would leave you with this morning, and that is this, a thought and a question. Jesus is coming. He's coming. He's coming very soon. And by the way you're currently living, can I ask you, are you ready? Are you ready? And if you're not ready this morning, don't delay to make adjustments in your life. Respond now. Respond today. Shall we stand? Let's pray together.